We began this year with a series uh, that we're in part four now called Rooted. And the purpose of this series is really to focus on the foundations and building our foundations in, in our faith and focusing on our root health so that we can bear much fruit. And when you focus on the root health, you can also, and work on the foundation, you could also withstand the storms that come. And many times we go into a new year and we're focused on the results that we want to see, the fruit. We're focused on, you know, uh, you know, avoiding storms and then get surprised by storms. And regardless of all, all that, and regardless of what you may have set as your New Year's resolution, I really felt praying into this year that, that we need to focus on our root health and getting our strength. And, and it's based on two, two particular scriptures, both written by the Apostle Paul, one to the church in Colossae, one to the church in Ephesus. And he told them to get rooted, build your roots in love, and, and it's also build your roots in Christ. And that's what we're focusing this series on. We've learned about... Uh, who our God is. We've learned about who Jesus is. Uh, last week, Pastor Jeremy did an incredible job of teaching us who the Holy Spirit is. And today, I, I want to I wanna take on maybe, it might be controversial um, to those who have been raised in church like, like I am. I, I was raised in church and I was taught, we're gonna talk about the Bible today and not, we're, we're gonna learn the story of the Bible so that we can apply the stories in the Bible properly, okay? And there's a big, there's a big difference. I grew up in church and I went to Bible college. I have a master's degree in theology. I say all that up front, because if you wanna challenge me, let's go. Um, we're, but I promise you, all, those, all the stuff that I learned and grew up being taught in those things, I wasn't taught this. What I'm about to teach you today, I wasn't taught this in Bible college. In fact, I was taught very little about the history of the Bible or the formation of the Bible. And, and when I began to study this and learn this and, and discovered this myself through research and, and through reading church history over the last number of years in particular, when I learned the story of the Bible, I fell more in love with it than ever before. But I, but I also had a lot of the, the questions that I had about it, um, you know, started to make sense. And I know many of you probably have questions about some of the stories in the Bible and, and you're just kind of, you know, and you're, when you question them, come on, if you're like me, when you question that, did that really happen? When you question that, where our response, the religious response is always, well, it's the Bible. You got to believe it. Right? Which is like, okay, but in other words, don't challenge it, which, okay. And it's all God-inspired. I was like, okay. But come on, there's some weird stuff in there. Come on, did anybody start New Year's resolution, start reading at the beginning? <laughs> I've tried that so many times, and then I, get, I stall out in about Genesis 6. Six chapters in, and there's some weird stuff in there. Like, like if you haven't read it, like, there's some weird stuff in there, and you're going, wait, what? Right? It says, should I just go there? Let's go there. It's in there. Go check it out. It says that demons slept with women and they birthed giants. 
Oh, okay. What? Like, I mean, I'm going, like, come on. This is, it's just, it's, it's, there's some strange stuff in there. And because of that, when you push back and question that, it was in the Bible, you got to believe it. Okay. But I, I, I'm telling you, I'm not pushing against the Bible. I'm pushing against some of the things that we've been taught about it. Is that okay? Because I want to push, push on this because I believe if you don't know the story of the Bible, it's easy to dis- discount the stories in the Bible. And that if you understand the, the story of the Bible and how it came to be, you're going to understand the stories in the Bible and properly apply them. Okay, which is what we need to do. So I'm going to push back maybe some of our, if you're new to Christianity, you probably have the same questions that I'm going to push back on. If you've been raised in the church, you probably had the same questions, but you've been kind of, you've kind of stuffed them off to the side because if you challenge them or bring them up, you just get told the same thing. And so you're just like, well, I'm, I'm giving you permission to push back. Is that okay? And we're going to understand the story of the Bible. Um, and... First of all, the word Bible basically can be easily translated as library. Okay, it's, it's basically, Bible means a collection of books. It's basically a library. Okay, and you might be surprised, okay, it's not, it's not one book, it's a collection of books. You might be surprised that the story of the Bible doesn't start in the beginning. It doesn't start with Genesis. The Bible, actually, the, the, the library of books that we now have as the Bible, started with a first century Greek doctor named Luke who wrote a detailed and orderly account of the life of Jesus. And this is, this is his book. We'll look at Luke chapter 1. It says this. This is how he starts the book of Luke. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now, just in that one sentence, this is how he starts a book. We can start to see you know, a number of things. First of all, many have take, undertaken to draw up an account of the things that I'm about to write. So the question is, okay, if many have already written this, why, Luke, are you writing this too? Okay, okay. so many have recorded this as well, which is the unusual thing in history is that there are so many accounts or stories of, of the life of Jesus. Okay, and then and Luke gives us an indication as to why Many have taken this, and, and he, the indication is, is that something happened among them. Okay, this, he says, we're, I'm giving you an undertaking, a drop an account of something that happened among us. This is, this, is very, this is very key. He's not writing, okay, he's not writing something way after the fact. He's writing an account and drawing up account while there are still people living among them who have eyewitnessed or have seen these things with their very own eyes. So when he, what he writes, he's not writing a, a fictional story because if he's writing, you know, just make something made up, then what, what, there's people still alive that can say, yeah, that didn't really happen that way. Yeah, that's not really, because they're still among them. Okay, which, is, which is key. He goes on in verse 2. He says, just as they were handed down to us. Okay, handed down. Okay, what does that mean? These stories, these, these accounts were handed down to us by those who were from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So he starts to emphasize that, okay, he's drawing up another account that happened among them, still people alive today. And he's, he's basically saying these were handed down or these stories were given to me by eyewitnesses, first-hand accounts of people who were there. 
So Luke is automatically saying, I wasn't at all of these events, but I did my homework. And I, 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 you can challenge my homework because there's still people alive that you can go and saying, did this really happen that way? Because there's still people among us who have seen this. And I got firsthand accounts from eyewitnesses, okay? So he's doing investigative journaling is basically what he's doing, okay? Then he says this in verse three, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated, okay, this is, he's done his homework, He's a Greek doctor. He's thorough, okay? I've carefully investigated everything from the beginning. In other words, in Luke chapter 2, when he tells the story of the birth of Jesus, he, he interviewed Mary, still among them, right? He interviewed maybe Jesus' brothers and uh, tell me some of these stories and tell me some of the, you know, these things that are Joseph, you know, uh, Jesus' Earthly father had passed on by this time, but he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning of Jesus' life, and I, too, decided to write an orderly account, and here's why. He decided to write another one for you, most excellent Theophilus, okay? Who's Theophilus, okay? And you have to remember, he's not, when Luke's writing this, he doesn't know he's writing the Bible, he doesn't know that he's even writing a book that we'd still be reading 2,000 years later. He's writing an orderly account for Theophilus. Okay, who's Theophilus? Theophilus is a, was a wealthy Jewish businessman who had become a Jesus follower, and, and he wanted to know that what he was dedicating his life to, because he knew this could cost me everything. As a wealthy businessman, this is probably going to cost me my business. This is probably going to cost me my wealth. This might cost me my family. This might, is, this might cost me my, my life. I want to know that I know that I know that what I've been told is true. So, Dr. Luke, I got the money to hire you to do the investigation to... to Give me an accurate account of all the things that have happened to make sure that what I believe is the truth. And this is why Luke writes it. So that you, this, it says, he tells us that in verse four. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is why Luke wrote the book of Luke. Not for us, but for Theophilus. Interesting. And he interviewed a number of eyewitnesses about the events surrounding Jesus' life and about the events surrounding Jesus' death. And he gives very detailed accounts of both. In fact, when he talks about Jesus' death, look at this in, verse, in, in Luke 23, verse 53. He says this, then he took it down. He's talking about Joseph, who was the businessman who, who gave the tomb, uh, gave up his tomb that you know, for to bury Jesus' body. So then Joseph took down, uh, took it down, wrapped it in it being the body of Jesus, wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb, cut in the rock, one which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Do you see the details? The specific day, the specific time, the specific location, okay, all of that. Okay, was very specific. Why all the details? Because Luke was a doctor. And because Luke cared about all the details and because Theophilus had paid him to care about all the details and to give this account. Okay, and, and Luke was giving all these details because he was making it clear that Jesus was really dead. 
because the rumors in the time was, well, Jesus' body disappeared and everybody's claiming that he rose again from the dead, but maybe the disciples just made it up or maybe Jesus wasn't really dead after all. Maybe he's just really wounded and three days later popped up. Like, okay, he, he, he went through, endured a lot. That would be a miraculous <laughs> recovery anyway. But, but Luke is making it very clear that Jesus was really dead. To who? To Theophilus. Then he says this, the next verse, he says, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and uh, how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, which was a Jewish custom for the dead. Again, all this detail to make sure that we know that Jesus was really dead. Okay? Now you have to remember, at this time, Jesus' death, that Saturday that he's talking about after the crucifixion, there were no Christians, there was no church, and the story should have ended there, right? And if it had, we wouldn't be reading or talking about it today. It would have just finished as a letter to Theophilus, okay? But Luke documented the life of Jesus in this way, and we're reading about it today because the story of Jesus did not end on a cross. Okay? Now, Luke went on to write another book documenting the 30 years in great detail after the death of Jesus, and he records the rise of, of the church, the early Christ followers. Why? Why did he document 30 years after? If it had ended on a Roman cross, why document it 30 years after? Because something extraordinary happened among them, of which he talked to eyewitnesses. And we know now that there was over 500 eyewitnesses that they documented back then, that Luke documented over 500 people that said they were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, that they physically saw him. And, and Peter would say this. Peter, remember... Peter, the one who denied, and, and Luke didn't hide that from the story, denied knowing, knowing uh, Jesus to a servant girl. Peter said this right after uh, the resurrection of Jesus in, in Acts chapter 2. And this is, this is what Luke recorded. And he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are, we are all witnesses of it. Again, this is key. He's writing. He doesn't know he's writing the Bible. He is writing and saying, we are all witnesses of it. And when he's writing this and documenting this, there are still eyewitnesses and still people alive who would claim to be eyewitnesses that anyone that says that's not the way it happened, they could have easily questioned it, tore it down. Somebody, would, if there was lies in here, would have spoken up and said, that's not true. And Rome would have paid them handsomely. Like they were looking for ways to shut all this down. Okay. There were witnesses. And remember, remember Luke starts his book with saying, many have undertaken to drop an account of these things. Many. Well, Peter was part of the many. Peter dictated his recollections of, of Jesus' life and, and death and resurrection to John Mark, and that's the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote down and documented uh, all of his recollections of, of the life and the experiences as an eyewitness and wrote all those down. That's the book of Matthew, right? So P 
Peter dictated, by the way, to John Mark because Peter was an illiterate fisherman. (laughs) So he had to have somebody else write it for him. And the book is also much shorter, (laughs) which is not Peter. But Mark's like, yeah, got that. (laughs) Made it short. John also wrote down his recollections. And John, it's interesting enough, John was the last one to write his, his. And you're thinking, well, why, John? There's already three others, or at least three others out there that we know of. Why write another account? It was the last one written. Why? John tells us in John 20, verse 31, he says, But these are written that you may, this is why, believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. This is why I'm writing yet another account. He's writing to the Jewish people. That you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that you might have life in his name. So those four accounts, that takes us to the end. Those were written all in the first century, within the time of which there were eyewitnesses of of all the events, on which the time anyone could have spoken up and challenged what was written or what was recorded and saying, no, I was there, that didn't happen that way, whatever that might be. Now, what we know is that those accounts, as the eyewitnesses, uh, were, were killed off or died off as that one happened. These accounts, these gospels were preserved and protected like crazy by the Christ followers, by the Christians, by the Jesus followers. Why were they protected? Because these were eyewitness accounts of what they were proclaiming to be true, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God, and they're protecting these things with their lives sometimes, protecting these writings, preserving these writings. In fact, in, in the first three centuries, the main role of a bishop, which a bishop is the, the one responsible for the church in a city, the main job description of a bishop included protecting, preserving the, the writings of the Gospels of Jesus. That was one of their main jobs, protect this thing, re, re, because these were eyewitness accounts of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Which then we get to the, the third century, the fourth century, and Emperor Diocletian comes along. Emperor Diocletian was a Roman Caesar who was very, very opposed to Christianity and to, and to the church. And Diocletian issued an edict in 303 AD that every Christian house was to be destroyed. Every, every, if you knew a Christian, that house would be destroyed. He also decreed that all Christian literature was to be uh, turned in and burned. And that thousands and thousands of Christians risked their lives and hundreds lost their lives in, in, this, in this time period, protecting, in about three years here, protecting not the Bible, protecting the writings of Luke, of Mark, of Matthew, of John, of Paul, protecting these things with their lives. And in fact, the edict said, if you were, to, if you were caught with Christian literature in, in your home, you were not only to be killed, but you were to be killed after watching your family be killed. And yet Christians fought and, and risked their lives and risked their families' lives to protect these writings because these were eyewitness accounts of something that happened among them. In 306 AD, Constantine became, became Caesar. 
and in York, actually he was crowned in York, England. And at this time, Constantine was one of four Caesars, which they had divided the, the Roman Empire, had grown extremely large, and they had divided the empire into four different sections. And, and so Constantine became one of four Caesars. And in 313, he partnered with another one of the Caesars, Emperor uh, Lucia, Lucinius, to co-sign what became the Edict of, of Milan. Okay? And the Edict of Milan granted full tolerance and protection to Christians. So all of a sudden, what Emperor Diocletian three years before had done, Constantine and Lucinius, they, they wrote an edict that actually began to protect Christians. And that worked well until Lucinius went back on his word and began persecuting Christians again and, and, and one of that. So Constantine, um, because of that, and I'm sure he didn't need much of a push because he saw the opportunity for power, Constantine ended up defeating the other three Caesars, including Lucinius, and became the sole emperor of Rome in 324. Okay, and, and in 324, one of his first acts was to write the Edict of Milan. Okay, and, and he, he became, and reinfor sorry, he reinforced, sorry, the Edict of Milan again. And Christians were able to work in public on their documents, and the stage was set for the formation of the Bible. Okay, in 324. Because now they didn't have to hide them. Now they could come out. Now they could, again, retranscribe. They could, they, could, they could protect them. They could go public with them. In, in May 20th to July 25th, 325, a year after uh, Constantine was crowned emperor, Constantine oversaw what is now for, you know, known as the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea, if you've been in church or, or know the Apostles' Creed or all that kind of stuff, that came out of the Council of Nicaea. Council of Nicaea is a very famous gathering. It was a gathering of some of the bishops, the, the most, the, the church leaders from all around then known world uh, gathered at Nicaea and created the Council of Nicaea. And contrary to uh, Voltaire's, uh, France's claim, that the Bible did not get formed at the Council of Nicaea. They established at the Council of Nicaea, they established a consensus that Jesus was God, they actually, they, they actually had to say that Jesus wasn't just a great teacher because there's all these different doctrines out there. They de declared the Apostles' Creed that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God. They declared that. And they, another curious thing that happened at the Council of Nicaea, they also um, uniform, established a uniform observance of Easter, the Council of Nicaea, and wrote a 20-point uh, canon, which is laws or, or constitution, of observance for the church, okay, which again set the stage. In 367 AD, Bishop of Alexandria, okay, uh, Athenius, uh, he said this in 367, he is a bishop, he writes an Easter letter to, to the church in which he includes a list of exactly the same books that would formerly become the New Testament. So he writes this and he says, he starts writing, and he wrote them in order. That he says, here's the books. These are, again, these are individual books. Here's the things that we should, that proclaim Jesus as God, that we should observe Matthew, Mark, you know, Luke, John, Acts. He, he, he puts them and writes them in order in 367. In 382, at the Council of Rome, okay, another council, another bunch of bishops gather. Pope uh, Damascus of uh, you know, the overseeing this, this council confirms the same list and at this council officially canonizes them, which basically puts this list of books into 
law or constitution of Christianity. These are the books we preserve. These are the books that we gather together. These are the books that we read in our, our gatherings, and this is what Christians need to learn. But on, in 405 A.D., Pope Innocent, okay, the first, again confirms the New Testament list of books, and they are considered Scripture. 405. Why am I telling you this history? I'm not telling you this history to bore you. I'm telling you, to, I'm telling you this history that 400 years... 400 years after Christ, the New Testament is formed. <laughs> Which begs me the question, if we, and, and I've been taught this, I've been taught this and you've been taught this, and if you haven't been taught this, you've insinuated this, that the foundation of the Christian faith is the Bible. That's what we've been taught, right? That's what we've been taught. But I have a question. How in the world did the church grow and expand and prosper and, and was probably the healthiest without the formalized Bible? Okay? So here's, here's why I'm saying all this. Because if the, if the Bible is the foundation of the Christian faith, then, if you ha then it, when somebody questions, you know, did God really create the earth in six days? Did Jonah really get swallowed by a whale? How could lions not eat down? Like all, all these, whatever these, these stories and going, I just don't believe that that would ever happen. Then we, 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 what happens is, is people discount our, the entire faith because they disagree or can't understand or why would God kill this or why would God do that? And it says that God did that. And how many of you heard these arguments from atheists that God was so mean, God all, all these, you've heard these things? I've heard these things. And when we say, well, the Bible says it, so that, yeah, okay, hold on. But the church prospered and grew for 400 years before just the New Testament was even considered scripture. You have to remember, they had the books. They preserved the books. But they didn't have it in our book. Okay? In fact, here, here's some church history for you. Martin Luther, anybody ever heard of him? Okay? Martin Luther lived 1483 to 1546. Here's something interesting about Martin Luther. Martin Luther disagreed with the New Testament list. A thousand years later, he goes, that's not the right list. Martin Luther, father of Protestant. You know what Martin Luther said? Martin Luther removed the book of Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation from the New Testament. But, okay, that was not generally accepted from his followers. And however, even still today, in the German language Luther, Luther Bible, to this day, uh, Hebrews, James, Jude, and Revelation are at the end of the book. Interesting. So that's the form, just the formation. Let's talk about the Old Testament for a second. When did the Old Testament get included? And why did the Old Testament get included? What's interesting is the Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible, okay? And, and the formation of the Hebrew Bible, this is, this is you know, Judaism. It, it was in the Hebrew Bible, there's only 24 books, That's, and we have 39 books in the Old Testament. And the reason why the Hebrew Bible has 24 books is because they consider Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, 
the 12 minor prophets, they consider Samuel to be one book, First and Second Kings to be one book, First and Second Chronicles to be one book, and the 12 minor prophets to be one book. They included uh, Ezra and Nehemiah as one book each. That's why they only have 24 and we have 39. Okay, but here's something that I, that I found fascinating. The Torah, this is the formation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. The Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Torah was canonized or made official, okay, only in 400 B.C. 400 years before Christ, the, the Torah was canonized or made constitutional as part of the, the Judaism and the Hebrew Bible. The prophets, okay, the prophets of the, uh, the Old Testament were canonized 200 years before Christ, 200 B.C., which is why Jesus doesn't quote from the Old Testament. Jesus quotes from the Law and the Prophets because that was the Hebrew Bible at the time. The writings, okay, the writings are Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, uh, Ruth, uh, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, uh, Ezra, Chronicles. The writings were canonized 100 A.D., so 100 years in the first century still, they were canonized then. And this formulated the Hebrew Bible. On their own. And what's fascinating is it's kind of weird, come on, it's kind of weird that Christians adopted, don't you think that's kind of, it's kind of weird, another religion's Bible and made it their own. Okay, but here's what happened. The Gentiles discovered that the Jewish Bible, the Jewish texts were the backstory to the story. And because they discovered it was the backstory to the story, they became very interested in them. And here's the, what's amazing. When Gentiles became Christians, they became enamored with the Jewish scriptures because they, and they adopted the Jewish Bible and started reading them on their own. Not, not because they wanted to adopt the Jewish faith. They didn't go looking in, in the Jewish Bible for religion or for religious practices. They went looking for Jesus. And the Gentile interest in the Jewish scriptures were not religious, historical, or cultural at all. They were, they were all the backstory to it was all about Jesus. And this there was a big clash, big clash between Jews and Christians in the first three centuries. Big clash. The reason why it was a big clash is because the Jews were upset that Christians took their Bible as their own and didn't follow the religion. And the Christians were upset because the, at the Jews because how could you read your Bible and not see Jesus? In fact, in fact, this clash happened. This, this, I find this hilarious. This clash happened, and, and the Hebrews would argue back and forth, and, well, he's not really the Messiah, and all this kind of stuff. To such a degree, it became such a big clash that the Hebrews, the, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, you know what they did? They removed one chapter out of the Old Testament because they couldn't argue that one chapter. And they removed Isaiah 53 out of the Hebrew Bible. You will, still will not find it. Isaiah 53 is not in the Hebrew Bible to this day. Well, what's Isaiah 53 say? It says, well, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of his well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. That's verse 5. Verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor had any deceit in his mouth. And if that wasn't enough proof, verse 12. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with our transgressions, for he bore the sin of many and made the intercession of the transgressions. And the, the Christians jumped up and down and said, that's Jesus. He fulfilled all of that. And the Hebrews were like, yeah. okay, scratch that. 
<laughs> now, come on. Bear with me for a second. I understand, I understand why the Gospels were canonized because they were eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. I understand that. I can even understand, and, and it was, what's fascinating is that there's much debate that we can still read because they documented every debate and every, every meeting. There's much debate in the early church in the first three centuries on whether to include the Old Testament or not. And the reason why they battled over this is because they didn't want people to mistake the Old Testament when, on, and make it equal with the New Testament. And they were scared of Christians being able to do this and putting the same weight on an old covenant as they would put on a new covenant, right? And, and, this, and they were scared of this, but they said, we have to include it because, and this is their decision, what they, wrote, they, what they wrote and what they said and what they spoke is we include it because every part of the Old Testament, it reveals Jesus, but it doesn't just only reveal Jesus. It reveals that Jesus was a man. And the New Testament reveals that he was God. And the theology of all that, that he was 100% man and 100% God, means that he was the Messiah. And they kept it because of that. Now, I can understand. Okay, I get that. But why keep the 13 letters of Paul? I mean, the 13 letters of Paul, some of them are pretty strict. Some of them are pretty direct. Some of them are pretty... Why protect the 13 letters of Paul? You know why I believe... You know why I believe they kept the 13 letters of Paul? I believe they kept the 13 letters of Paul because Paul was the perfect, the perfect candidate to tie together the Old Testament and the New Testament and to make the two make sense. Because Paul, Paul was a Pharisee at one point. He was a, a scribe. He knew the Hebrew Bible inside and out, had most of it memorized. And he could debate it. He could talk about it. He could understand it. He could quote it. He, he knew that. But Paul was also a Roman citizen. And a Roman citizen who had a ministry to the Gentiles. And he uh, and had an encounter with Jesus. And he was the perfect one to tie to do together. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, he, he does this in one of his letters. He ties together the Old Testament and the New Testament. And here's what he said about the Old Testament. He says, now these things occurred as examples and were written down as warnings uh, or to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things that they did, talking about the Israelites and their plight from Egypt. He says, these things were written down as examples, not as religious law, not as, as religious observance, not just as a historical account, but these were written down as examples of keeping our, setting our hearts on the evil things that they did. Then he goes on in verse 11, he says, these things uh, happened to them as examples when written down as warnings to us. So let me just put this into context. I have, uh, there's times when I was a child and I remember, you know, I remember my dad having a talk with my brother and I would listen, I would overhear and I would, I would be paying attention to what my dad, the instructions my dad was giving my brother because I used my brother's mistakes as an example of what to, where I could tread and where I couldn't tread, what I could get away with and what I couldn't get away with. It wasn't, it wasn't the same rules weren't made to him. That was made to him. That wasn't made to me. But I, it would have been foolish for me to discount them, right? I use them as an example. And Paul's saying that, hey, we're using the mistakes of the Israelites as an example. Not only of what not to do, but we're using an example of who our God is. And we can see who our God is. And what he values and what he doesn't. 
The purpose of the Old Testament is to point to Jesus. This is why I'm saying this. It's not meant to be used with the same authority as the New Testament. I believe, come on, and I know, I know immediately right now, all the Christians, I can hear you pushing, because I push back. All scripture is God-breathed. Okay, wait, hold on. <laughs> that was written in Timothy as a letter from Paul to Timothy. What scriptures was he referring to? Because there wasn't a book yet. But now watch. I believe this. Before you, before you push, I believe all scripture is God-breathed. I believe it. I believe all scripture is God-inspired. I believe it to the core of my being. But I don't believe that all scripture is equally applicable. Or else, all you women better be wearing hats. And a certain time of month, you should probably be outside the city all congregated together. <laughs> and there's things we can't eat and we can't eat. And there's things, come on, come on, come on, come on. Christian, Christians get weird when we, st when we hold port, part of the documents to account, but not the others. And people read this and going, well, what? Huh? That doesn't make sense. Listen, all scripture is God-inspired, but not all scripture is, God, is, is the same applicable. And here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to know before you push back on me is that the Bible is organized by the early church through much debate, okay, for hundreds of years, much debate. The Bible is organized into two covenants, the new covenant and the old covenant, the, which is what testament means. The old covenant is a covenant between God and ancient Israel. The new covenant is a, is a covenant between God and you. Come on. So the next time you send out a graduation card with Jeremiah 29, 11 on there, for God knows the plans he has for you to prosper you and to give you a future and a hope, you should probably include the verse 10, which means you're going to have to wait 70 years to get that blessing. <laughs> so God has wonderful plans for you when you're 88. <laughs> now, come on, come on, come on, come on. We can't, we can't, hey, we can't. Cherry pick what we like. Now listen, listen. The heart of God is he has plans for you to prosper you, but that's a covenant between God and ancient Israel. Because we can also say, well, wherever my foot shall tread, as you tread on somebody else's property, that it shall be mine. No, that's a covenant between God and ancient Israel. That's not a covenant between God and you. Come on, our theology. We get weird when we, when we start applying with equal Authority. All of it's God-inspired. Not all of it's applicable in the same way. But in the midst of it, what do we look for? What's this? Come on, come on, come on. In the midst of this, what do we go looking for? We go looking for exactly what the church protected why the church gave their lives for it, why people sacrificed to keep these books and to, and to preserve them. We go looking for the exact same thing. Jesus! It's Jesus! The Old Testament tells us he's 100% man. The New Testament tells us he's 100% God. That he, that, he is, that he is risen from the dead. Come on. He is God. Here's, here's today's takeaway. Jesus did not write 
the Bible, but he's the reason we have it. The foundation, come on, we're talking about rooted. Any, any, anybody else notice we, we can get weird as Christians sometimes? All the questions that you've had, all the theology, I just, we need to get this. We, we need to get this because there, all the weird theologies, all the weird theologies, all the weird, weirdness that Christians have, it's when they don't understand this and use Old Testament weirdness. Right? Old Testament says that we should kill anyone who doesn't believe. That's weird. That's what that's God told Israel to do. Why? Because before Jesus, he couldn't separate man from their sin. But after Jesus, everything changed. Because God was creating a nation. Why did God have a covenant with Israel? Because of a promise he made to Abraham that the Messiah, Jesus, would come from his seed. And because of that, he had to protect a nation and make a covenant with a nation, all because of Jesus. The the, The old church saw this. We need to as well. In fact, Paul, who's the perfect Go between the Old Testament and the New Testament, how to put this in understanding. Paul said this. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is our faith. It's all about Jesus. And it's taking our cue. We should take our cue from the covenant that God made with you. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, verse 17. One of his first messages, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. Do you know what that means? That means that all the Old Testament, everything that God did, everything that the prophets said, all the rest of it, when Jesus said, when he started his ministry, he says all of that, is fulfilled. All of that is complete. It's done. It's complete. So therefore, he says it's fulfilled. It's not abolished. He says don't abolish it. Why? Because you'll see me all throughout it. But realize it's all that covenant between God and Israel was fulfilled with Jesus. And he birthed, Jesus birthed a new covenant with you. So come on, if you're new to the church, if you're new to Christianity, please don't read the Old Testament first. Don't start at the beginning of the book. Don't do it. Don't read the New Testament. No, no, no. Start with Gospel of John. Did you know that if you just read the Gospel of John, that's all you need? That's all you need. Because in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how he starts the book. And then he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. (laughs) Just, Just need Jesus. And the fulfillment 
the fulfillment of the old covenant and the fact that God held up his promise means that he's trustworthy to hold up the new covenant promise too. That's why we have it in here. So when you read the Old Testament, read it like an observer, like you're listening to your dad chastise your brother and go, oh, interesting. I should probably not do that. Let's pray. Does this help anybody? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is God-breathed, that it is God-inspired. I thank you, Jesus, that you fulfilled the Old Testament. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are Lord, that you are God, that you rose again from the dead, and that we can believe all of your promises are yes and amen. We thank you, Jesus, for that. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd solidify that in our hearts. In Jesus' name, help us to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're here, maybe one of the reasons why you've hesitated or never following Jesus is because you read some of this and went, I don't want anything to do with that. Well, the good news is the early church for 400 years read the Old Testament and were like, well, we're not doing that religion. They wanted nothing to do with it too. <laughs> so come on. Don't, don't, don't read this for religious practices. Read this for a relationship to connect with Jesus because it's not about a religion. It's about a relationship with him and the fact is that Jesus is God and that all you need to do to begin a relationship with him and to begin a faith in him is to know that he is God. As Paul said it in Romans 10, you need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is God and if you believe in your heart that he rose again from the dead, you will be saved. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now that confesses with your mouth that Jesus is God. And if you, you don't have to believe the rest of this. You just need to believe Jesus rose again from the dead. And if you confess that and believe that right here, right now, you can begin relationship with him. Let's pray. It's together. If you're praying for the first time, pray with all your heart and your meaning. If you're watching online, pray with me right where you are. Let's pray this together. Dear Jesus, I confess that you are God. And I believe that you rose again from the dead. And I ask you right now to become my God, my Lord and Savior, my friend. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sins, for accepting me just as I am. I give my heart to you in Jesus' name.